episode 18 of the Truth Quest podcast, The Truth About Gun Control. Do me a favor and share the show with your friends. If you are having a discussion about Obamacare, prayer, the Supreme Court, healthcare reform, or gun control, please share the specific episode with them. If you are so inclined, please give the podcast a five-star rating in iTunes. Also, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show via Facebook and Twitter advertising. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link to the support page. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. The easiest way to stay in touch and up to date is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. It is also available on Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. Okay, let's lay the groundwork for this episode with a quick Did You Know segment. Did you know a 2013 Department of Justice study found that gun violence is down 50% since 1993? Did you know the so-called gun show loophole is a myth? Did you know 2.5 million times a year guns are used in self-defense? Did you know guns are used 80 times more often to prevent crime than to take lives in the U.S.? Did you know crime dropped 50% in Kenneshaw, Georgia, after the town passed a law requiring every home to have a gun? Did you know that according to the Crime Prevention Report Center study, conceal and carry permit holders are one of the most law-abiding demographics in America? Did you know firearm murders per capita has steadily declined from 6.3 murders in 1994 to 3.2 murders in 2011, while at the same time, total firearms in the U.S. has increased from 192 million to over 300 million. It's been a few episodes since we discussed the dirty half dozen. These are the tactics used and behaviors displayed by skeptics. We're going to talk about two of them today. Dirty half dozen member number two, ignorance, and dirty half-dozen member number three, emotional arguments. Successfully arguing this issue, gun control, really only requires you to repeat the words of gun control advocates back to them with a little commentary. The illogic of their arguments and the place of ignorance from which they argue is quite easy to identify and dismantle for any intellectually honest person. I am astonished how confidently many advocates speak from a place of ignorance. They are confident in their argument despite their ignorance on the topic. There are lots of loose ends in the argument of gun control advocates. Bows need to be tied on them before they should be permitted to continue to pontificate. Two examples. They scream about assault weapons ban. Okay, what do you mean by that? Do you mean automatic weapons? Do you mean AR-15s? Do you mean any weapon that looks militaristic? Typically, these types of questions are followed either by a blank stare or name-calling. They also scream, semi-automatic weapons ban. Okay, what do you mean by that? Do you even know what that means? Virtually every weapon in America is a semi-automatic. Any firearm designed to fire one bullet with one trigger squeeze, then automatically reload the chamber with a cartridge from a magazine, and ready to fire again, is considered a semi-automatic weapon. Again, you're going to get blank stares or name-calling. How about dirty half-dozen member number three, emotional arguments? You don't need an AR-15 to hunt deer or shoot skeet. All you need is a seven-bullet clip. We need to ban the guns that look scary. Military-style weapons. We need to protect the children. Oh yeah, by sending them in gun-free shooting galleries? Really? That's your idea, protecting the children? Sorry for the digression. More on gun-free zones later. 
How about, we must ban automatic weapons? These, of course, were banned in 1934, but why let the facts get in the way of a good old-fashioned shaming of gun rights advocates? Okay, so let's move now to some meat and potatoes with a quick lesson on the Second Amendment. It reads, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, take a moment and reflect on the real purpose of the Second Amendment. It granted the people the right to take up arms in defense of themselves, their families, and property in the face of invading armies or an oppressive government. Never forget the government part. The argument that the Second Amendment only applies to hunting and target shooting is asinine. When the Constitution was written, hunting was an everyday chore, and target shooting was largely unnecessary. The Second Amendment was written by people who fled oppressive and tyrannical regimes in Europe. It refers to the right of American citizens to be armed for defensive purposes should such tyranny arise in the United States. Judge Andrew Napolitano said, By creating gun bans and stripping you of your natural right to protect your personal property, the government is not keeping you any safer. So before you blindly accept whatever new firearms legislation is served up, remember that evil does exist. Evil will still exist if you restrict gun ownership. When you look at human history, what entity is responsible for the greatest human tragedies on record? Answer, government. Consider Nazi Germany. Consider what happened to the Native Americans, the Armenians. Consider the Soviet Union, China, Cam Cambodia, Ukraine, Uganda, Rwanda, Ser Serbia, Guatemala, Syria, Yemen, and countless others. It is worth noting that in many of these instances, the government first disarmed the people, then perpetrated mass murder. It's important to understand that the Second Amendment does not give us any rights. As Mises.org states, quote, It prohibits the federal government from infringing on rights that are natural and God-given, and that pre-exist government. They continue, But notice something important about the Bill of Rights. It gives no one any rights. Instead, it prohibits the federal government from infringing or destroying rights that already exist. It really should be called the Bill of Prohibitions rather than the Bill of Rights. Even without the Bill of Rights, the federal government has no legitimate authority to control what people read or what people own, including books and guns. That's because these rights pre-existed the government and because the Constitution did not give the federal government the power to infringe on these pre-existing rights. With that groundwork laid, let's talk about something that seems to be in shortage these days. Common sense. The following is an excerpt from my book, Critical Thinking, the chapter on gun control. I call it sixth grade logic. This is a dinner table conversation I had with my kids a few days after the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. The topic of the shooting came up, and knowing that I was writing a chapter on gun control, I was curious what the kids thought. So I asked, what do you guys think about people having guns? All three of my kids had the same initial reaction, that there should be some restrictions. When I asked my son, a sixth grader at the time, why, he said, well, it would be dangerous if a bunch of people had guns. He then paused, and the most astonishing thing happened. Common sense descended on him, and without any prompting from me, he said, if all good people were not allowed to have guns, then only the bad people would have them, and then the bad people could do whatever they wanted, and the good people would be stuck waiting for the police to come help them. That's what I call sixth grade logic. How much logic does it require to understand that gun-free zones are nothing more than target practice for armed cowards? How much logic does it take 
to look at statistics that show how violence decreases as concealed weapon permits increase. This is the more guns, less crime argument that shows that guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens equates to less crime. It simply does not take that much effort to examine the evidence. Compare the gun violence rates in municipalities with the strictest gun restrictions, such as Chicago and Washington, D.C., to those with the highest per capita conceal and carry licenses. The former have the highest rates and the latter the lowest. How much logic does it take to understand that those who push these gun restriction policies are after two things, power and control? How much logic does it take to understand that bad guys will not register their guns, nor will they follow the law? How much logic, or should I say hypocrisy, does it take to understand the absurdity of a 48-hour waiting period to buy a gun, but hearing these same advocates oppose any attempts to impose a waiting period on getting an abortion? How much logic does it take to understand that gun ownership restrictions will hurt women? With all the hype and attention over sexual assault and the Me Too movement, why don't we ever hear these folks discussing how the playing field gets leveled quickly when a woman, facing a potential assaulter, pulls out a 9mm from her purse? In fact, statistics show that approximately 200,000 women use guns each year in the United States to protect themselves against sex crimes. The cherry-picking, liberal, anti-gun lobby consistently makes the argument that we should implement universal background checks for gun purchases because the majority of Americans agree with their use. Using this logic, the majority of Americans believe in the traditional definition of marriage, and many states have passed laws protecting it, yet liberals still want to impose the same-sex marriage agenda on us. Majority of Americans opposed Obamacare before and after it was passed. That didn't stop the Democrats from shoving it down our throats. The majority of Americans are opposed to double-digit trillion-dollar national debt, yet has been doubled under the past two presidents and likely to do the same under Trump. The majority of Americans are opposed to NSA spying on us, yet Bush, Obama, and the Trump administration all expanded the program. I could go on and on. One final point about e-logic in most gun control arguments why is it that these folks never call for knife control, or hammer control, or machete control, screwdriver control, crowbar, lead pipe, automobile control? Presumably, the government could do something about these weapons, or potential weapons, because they are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution as do not disturb. While we are picking apart gun control advocates' arguments, consider this. I keep hearing these so-called advocates arguing that assault weapons should be banned because they are unnecessary. They say things like, you don't need an assault weapon to shoot a deer, you don't need an assault weapon to shoot skeet. Properly applying this logic, maybe we should ban the Department of Education, or Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Health and Human Services, Federal Reserve, the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Energy, and Amtrak. I mean, after all, we don't need these, the federal government to educate our, educate our children. We don't need a quasi-government agency in order to offer mortgages to people. We don't need a federal health agency for the people to have health care. We certainly don't need a nine-member board to determine our monetary policy. We don't need a federal agency to keep our drugs safe, a federal agency to stifle energy exploration, or a federally subsidized train system. The point of this laundry list is to train you to look for inconsistencies in your debating partner's arguments. While you want to stay on topic as much as possible, understanding how your opponents think about other topics is helpful in taking them down a notch or two. Force your gun control advocate friend to defend some of their other beliefs using their gun control logic. How many of you are familiar with the history of gun control in Britain? It's a perfect example of the proverbial slippery slope. In 1689, King William of Orange guaranteed his subjects, except Catholics, the right to bear arms for self-defense in a new Bill of Rights. 
1819, a Temporary Seizure of Arms Act was passed, allowing constables to search for and confiscate arms from people who are, quote, dangerous to public peace. It was set to expire in two years. In 1870, a license was required to carry a firearm outside the house. In 1903, the Pistol Act was introduced. No guns for drunks or mentally insane, and licenses required for handgun purchases. In 1920, Firearms Act ushers in first registration system. It gave the police the ability to deny a license to anyone, quote, unfit to be trusted with a firearm. Gun ownership became a privilege, not a right. 1937, they updated the Firearms Act, raising the minimum age to buy a gun and giving the police more power to re- regulate licenses and bans most formally uh, automatic weapons. The Home Secretary ruled that self-defense is no longer a valid reason to be granted a gun certificate, essentially repealing the original Bill of Rights from 1689. 1967, the Criminal Justice Act expands licensings to shotguns. 1968, applicants for a license must show good reason for carrying a gun and ammo. 1988, the Hungerford Massacre, an amendment to the Firearms Act, is passed, banning several types of guns altogether. 1997, after the Dunblane Massacre, another Firearm Act amendment is passed, essentially banning all handguns. Fast forward to 2006, the Violent Crime Reduction Act is passed, making it a crime to make or sell imitation guns and further restricting air weapons. Wow. The English have taken this so far today that many police officers in Britain do not carry a gun. Imagine that. Have you ever heard gun advocates make asinine comments like, no mass killings have ever been prevented by someone else with a gun? The correct response to this type of comment is, of course, no shit, Sherlock, it wouldn't have been a mass killing if someone shot and killed the gunman. Eh, But short of that smart-ass response, tell them to research the following incidents and get back to you. 1991, Anniston, Alabama, Shoney's Restaurant Shooting. 1997, Shooting at Pearl High School in Pearl, Mississippi. 1998, Shooting in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania. 2007, Shooting at the Denver, Colorado Christian Youth with a Mission. The 2012 Shooting in Oregon Mall. Hell, even as I did research for this episode, I came across an article at crimeresearch.org that documented 67 defensive gun uses by people legally carrying guns in public over the past three months. I also came across a Cato Institute white paper called Tough Crimes When Criminals Face Armed Resistance from Citizens. That provided some good information. See the show notes page for both of those. What about mental illness and gun crime? Why is it that every mass shooting is perpetrated by a mentally ill person, but the left's answer to the problem is to take everyone's guns away? Were the killers at Columbine mentally ill? Fort Hill? Aurora? Newtown, Virginia Tech, Santa Clara, Norway, Parkland High School, Orlando Nightclub, the Pittsburgh Synagogue, Las Vegas? Do mentally healthy people commit mass murder? A review and possible overhaul of the mental health system is in order if we are going to seriously address gun crime, but a series of court decisions and budget cuts have severely restricted our mental health capacity in America, which goes hand-in-hand with the homeless issue we currently face. As we wrap up this episode, I want to spend some time talking about gun-free zones. What did the shootings at Fort Hill, Santa Barbara, Newtown, Connecticut, Aurora, Colorado, Virginia Tech, Louisiana Tech, Appalachian State School of Law, Shepherd University, the University of Arizona, Chattanooga Marine Recruiting Facility, Parkland, Florida, all have in common? 
they all occurred in gun-free zones. In fact, 90% of mass shootings since 2009 occurred in so-called gun-free zones. What I am about to say may sound harsh, but you have to be mentally ill, stupid, or extremely naive to actually think it is a good idea to post a sign that announces that a building is a gun-free zone. Gun-free zones do not prevent shooters from executing innocent people. It only prevents innocent people from defending themselves. Why announce to a perpetrator that they are entering a soft target? I would rather send my kids to a school with a sign posted out front that says something like, Some of our staff are armed with loaded guns. They receive quarterly training on how to handle active shooter events. Enter armed at your own risk, but be prepared to die. As Daniel Mitchell put it in one of his blog posts, Some of these gun control ideas may sound reasonable, but they all suffer from common flaw. None of them would disarm criminals or reduce gun crime. And I've detected a very troubling pattern, namely that when you explain why these schemes won't work, the knee-jerk response from the anti-gun crowd is that we then need greater levels of control. Indeed, if you press them on the issue, they often admit that their real goal is gun confiscation. The big takeaway that I hope you get from this episode is a better framework with which to evaluate pro-gun arguments. First, gun control proponents must be forced to answer the question, do we have a natural right to self-defense? Yes or no? Do not allow a yes but answer. If yes, then you are in a good place with them. If no, then they must agree that government in the form of police will suffice to protect them from the bad guy who breaks into their house in the middle of the night armed with a gun, assuming they have time to call the police. See how their argument falls apart on its face? Second, they cannot apply extra constitutional meanings to the Second Amendment, and they cannot ignore the original intent at the time of ratification. Third, they cannot be allowed to ignore the evidence. Specifically, more guns in the hand of law-abiding citizens equates to less crime. Given that, we must make them answer a series of questions. Why do you want to restrict gun ownership for law-abiding citizens? And if you do restrict gun ownership, how can you ensure that bad guys won't get them? Proponents must also be forced to answer how they can support gun control measures given the historical facts of dictators like King George III, who was in the process of disarming the colonists when a little thing called the American Revolution broke out, or Hitler or Pol Pot, Castro, Mao Zedong, or Stalin, and others, that took guns from their people before killing them. Again, their argument falls apart on its face because of its idiocy. Finally, they must be forced to answer for their support for gun-free zones. How do these make people safer when you make them sitting ducks? I will leave you with this quote from Thomas Jefferson. The law that forbids the carrying of arms disarms only those who are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Please join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. <laughs>